0: Joshua and the people of God, you remember now, have been commissioned and gone out to inherit the the promised land. And one of the things they did was to bring the judgment of Yahweh, the covenant Lord, upon the nations. And one of those nations was Jericho. And we know the story of Jericho and the the marching around the, the city seven times. Again, God's scandalous ways through marching, through walking. He defeats his enemies. You see, he will not share his glory with flesh. He's not going to share his glory with the flesh of men. Just not. So he uses these scandalous ways to show forth his glory. So there'll be no explanation other than God and God himself has delivered his people. Well, he delivered them in Jericho. At the end of the story, though, Joshua pronounces a curse on Jericho. And I'd like to read it to you. It's chapter 6, verse 16, before we scoot over to 1 Kings. Joshua laid an oath on them at that time, saying, Curse before the Lord Yahweh be the man who raises up and rebuilds this city, Jericho. If he does, it's at the cost of his firstborn." He shall lay its foundations, and at the cost of his youngest son shall he set up its gates. So the man who dares to rebuild Jericho is going to lose not only his firstborn, but his youngest son. That's the promise. That's the covenant curse that now resides on Jericho. Let's turn over to First Kings. First Kings. Let's pick up reading in chapter sixteen, twenty-nine. It's now the 9th century BC in the northern kingdom, approximately 60 years after Jeroboam. The northern kingdom is now ruled by King Ahab. Now he married Jezebel, and we're going to be introduced to her later. But believe it or not, Ahab and his father before him bring a little bit of stability, at least governmental political stability and economic security to the northern kingdom because prior to Omri the father of Ahab there is all this political upheaval there are assassinations there are these various coups but now there's some stability and yet at the same time while there's political stability the spiritual darkness continues to encroach and enshroud the kingdom. So we ask ourselves, where is God amidst all the darkness? Maybe you're asking that question today as we look at the landscape of America. Right? We sing God bless America at sporting events. And I, I shake my head, really? It says our money, in God we trust. Oh, oh, really? So where is God in all of this? Well, suddenly like lightning, we're going to be introduced to the God who shows up through his prophet Elijah He's going to bring a word of judgment in chapter 17, and the battle lines will be drawn between the God who is and all other pretenders, the non-gods, the illusions, the gods of Baal and the gods of the nations. So listen now as we pick up reading in verse 29 of chapter 16. This is God's holy word. In the 38th year of Asa, king of Judah, Ahab, son of Omri, began to reign over Israel. And Ahab, the son of Omri, reigned over Israel in Samaria 22 years. And Ahab, the son of Omri, did evil in the sight of the Lord Yahweh more than all who were before him. And as if it had been a light thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nabat, He took for his wife Jezebel, the daughter of Ephbal, king of the Sidonians, and went and served Baal and worshipped him. He, Ahab, erected an altar for Baal in the house of Baal, which he built in Samaria. And Ahab made an aseroth. Ahab did more to provoke the Lord Yahweh, the God of Israel, to anger than all the kings of Israel who were before him. In his days, heel of Bethel built Jericho. He laid its foundations at the cost of Abiram, his firstborn, and set up its gates at the cost of his youngest son, Sigu. According to the word of the Lord Yahweh, which he spoke by Joshua, the son of Nun. Chapter 17, verse 1. Now Elijah, the Tishbite of Tishbe in Gilead, said to Ahab, As the Lord Yahweh, the God of Israel, lives before whom I stand, there shall be neither dew nor rain these years except at my word. And the word of the Lord Yahweh came to him. Depart from here and turn eastward and hide yourself by the brook Kareth, which is east of the Jordan. You shall have commanded the ravens to feed you there. So he, Elijah, went and did according to the word of the Lord Yahweh. He went and lived by the brook Kareth, that is east of the Jordan. And the ravens brought him bread and meat in the morning, and bread and meat in the evening, and he drank from the brook. And after a while the brook dried up, because there was no rain in the land. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. Let us pray and seek his face. O living God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the triune God, the only God who is, immortal, invisible, God only wise, come in this hour and bless us with your spirit. Convict the proud and the haughty. Bring them low, and those who are low, those who are broken and contrite, would you lift their hearts? And may those who are proud and those who are low all together in unison praise the Lamb who was slain, who was buried, and who was raised for the justification of his people, for the progressive sanctification of his people, that he might make them holy. And on that last day, declare them holy in all glory that we, your people, will see you as you are, Lord Jesus Christ, and on that day we will be like you. May the wonder, the glory the magnificence of this great gospel that is scandalous and seemingly powerless and foolishness to the unbelieving world but to we who are being saved it is the sweet fragrance of salvation, life from the dead, spiritual death and ultimately bodily death. We look to you, the God who raises the dead spiritually and who one day raise our mortal bodies and clothe us with a body like yours. Come in this hour and bless these weak efforts that I have studied and sought your face on behalf of your people. Feed them, even as the ravens fed Elijah. Would you come and feed us? We pray in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. The NIV translates James Five sixteen, as follows, Elijah was a man just like us. Now that statement, if you know anything about the ministry of Elijah, you've read ahead, you, you know a little bit about him and his ministry that God gave him. That statement is a little hard to get our, our minds around, our hearts around, right? How are we like the The great prophet who faced down the wicked Ahab and Jezebel and the prophets of Baal at Mount Carmel. How are we like Elijah who cared for the widow and the orphan? How are we like him? A man who raised the dead, a a man who spoke with God on the mountain of God and did not die. He saw God and did not die. The man who was taken up, as it were, in a whirlwind, a a fiery chariot. He walked with God and was no more as the whirlwind of the fiery chariot caught him up. How is an Elijah like us? You see, saints, God wants us to see that Elijah's like us in that he was a sinner. He was a sinner saved by grace, grace alone in the Lamb who was to come. That lamb that you know by the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, the Old Testament saints look forward to, you look back to, saved him by his merits and what he accomplished at Calvary. You see, he was an ordinary man who was called to serve an extraordinary God. As I've been saying over the weeks, as we've been looking at this Old Testament text and narrative and looking for the gospel in the text, that... Paul writes and reminds us in Romans 15, what was written in former times was written for our instruction that through endurance and encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. You see, we might have hope. Not wishful thinking, but hope anchored in the realities of what God has done in the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, the world's hope is just, well, I hope it works out. I hope Alabama wins. Well, ah, ah, ah. Ah, but they didn't. I hope it doesn't rain, right? You see, it's just wishful thinking, right? But the hope of God is banked on the person and work of God. He signed his hope in the blood of his own son. You can bank on it. You know it's going to come to pass. So let's look at this text as we think about this hope, right, that the scriptures long for us to have, how Elijah is like us. Just two points. Like us, Elijah lived in an evil day. He lived in an evil day when the days were evil in the 9th century B.C. Just like we do. We live in an evil day, a perverse day, a wicked and evil day. That's where we reside. And secondly, like us, Elijah served a faithful God. So he lived in an evil day and he served a faithful God. Just like us. We live in an evil day and we serve a faithful God. Let's look at the first point. Like us, Elijah lived in an evil day. Now, if you were a politician or an advisor in the 9th century BC, particularly under the the rule and reign of Ahab, things didn't look too bad. You were enjoying security, national security, personal security, financial wealth and prosperity. And like I mentioned earlier, prior to Ahab, right, it was marked by political upheaval. Numerous coups and assassins. But notice that the Bible does not evaluate a political ruler's reign or rule or governance based on economic or political success. Notice God's evaluation of Ahab. How does God view Ahab? How does God view men? Well, notice how he viewed Ahab. Verse... 30 of chapter 16. Ahab did evil in the sight of Yahweh more than all who were before him. Now that's saying something. If you have any idea of those who preceded Ahab, then you know uh, that's as strong as it gets. Verse 33 provoking Yahweh to anger more than all the kings of Israel before him. He's more wicked. You see what it's saying? It's saying he's even more wicked than King Jeroboam. Whom we were introduced to last week. Who erected the bull worship in Bethel and Dan. For political self-interest to hedge off migration to the south. He's more wicked than you've come before him. So what did Ahab exactly do that was so wicked? First... Notice that Ahab considered the sins, now listen, the sins of his father to be little more than trivialities. He didn't think much of sin. He was a man whose heart and conscience was cauterized, cauterized rather, right? Sin was no big deal. It was seemingly inconsequential. You see, when you start to see sin as inconsequential, that's because you begin to misunderstand who God is. You see, Elijah did not have place for God in his understanding. He had forgotten Yahweh. Well, secondly, not only did he look upon sin as mere an inconvenience, a triviality. Notice, secondly, Ahab marries who? The princess of Sidonia, right? Right? The Sidonian princess Jezebel. Now, perhaps this was perform a a political alliance, right? To muster alliance and fortify his reign. But notice, remember now, Solomon also gave his heart to many foreign women. You see, this is exactly where Solomon went off track. When you marry outside of the Lord. When you become unequally yoked. Right, Christian? You're not... Created to be yoked to an unbeliever. Verse 31. Ahab took for his wife Jezebel, the daughter of Ithbal, king of the Sidonians. And what was the marriage dowry that Jezebel brought with her? What did she give to the marriage? What did she give to the nation of Israel? What did she bring? She brought Baal worship. She brought idolatry. Now Baal was the Canaanite fertility god. He was the storm god. It was believed that Baal controlled the seasons. Baal was the god of the weather. He was the meteorological god. He was the god who controlled the rain. Right? And if you live in an agrarian culture, that's pretty important. Right? They don't, there's no Publix. There's no Kroger. No food lion anywhere in Israel. You were dependent on the rain. Well, not only did Ahab and Jezebel's marriage form a political alliance, sadly it formed an alliance between Israel and the false god Baal. And as you read ahead, you soon realize it's Jezebel. Then it's Jezebel who's wearing the pants and the family. It's Jezebel who's ruling the northern kingdom. Ahab's a mere puppet. And no place is that better seen, as we'll see, than in the little pericope the little story of Naboth right you can see that and I'm not going to get ahead of us but you quickly see who is ruling the northern kingdom one commentator says she's the she's the lady Macbeth of the Old Testament that's exactly right here's a woman who personifies in her person the very antichrist she's anti Yahweh she embodies the incarnation if you will of evil And thirdly, as if marrying outside the Lord was not bad enough, Ahab himself became a Baal worshiper. Verses 31 to 32, Ahab went and served Baal and worshipped him. And he erected an altar for Baal in the house of Baal, which he, Ahab, using the the taxed revenue gathered from the people of God, built a house to Baal in Samaria, the very capital of the northern kingdom. And we're told in verse 32. On top of that, as if that were not bad enough, he made an Asherah. It was believed that the Asherah was Baal's female companion. And you can imagine: you have Baal, male; you have the Asherah female. They're fertility gods. If you want rain, what do the fertility gods have to do? I don't want to be crude, but the word of God is clear. They began to have intercourse. And one of the ways that they would excite the false gods of Baal and Asherah to have intercourse was to begin having their own intercourse at the temple there. Prostitution was rampant. All of this is happening where, church? In the world? No. It's in the visible church. This is happening in the visible church. This is where this is This is where this evil is metastasizing, growing as a cancer, eating away at the people of God. So often we consume ourselves with what's going on out there. But judgment begins according to Peter, where? In the house of the Lord. It begins here. You see, and Israel's going to find that out very shortly. So Ahab enshrined, Baal worshiped. In the heart of the people. It was a state-sponsored idolatry, if you will. Now, Ahab is absolutely the worst king Israel has ever had. But then we have this, this little interesting story. And I gave you a little bit of context there in verse 34 of chapter 16. Right? You're thinking, that seems so strange. The narrative doesn't go. It doesn't work well. What is this? Thing with Bethel and his two sons and Jericho. What's, what's the deal? You see, we have an illustration here in verse 34 of just how evil the days of Ahab had become. This strange story. Notice what it says in verse 34 of chapter 16. Look in the word of God. In his days, that is the days of Ahab. That's the antecedent. Those days. The days of Jezebel and Ahab, heel of Bethel, built Jericho. He laid its foundations at the cost of Abiram, his firstborn son. And he set up its gates at the cost of his youngest son, Sigu, according to the word of Yahweh, which he spoke by Joshua, the son of Nun. You see, in Joshua 6.26, after the destruction of Jericho, Joshua pronounced a curse upon anyone who would rebuild Jericho. Cursed be anyone who seeks to rebuild the city of Jericho, to lay its foundations once again. So who would dare defy the curse of God? Who would be so audacious, so wicked to count as trivial the word of God? You know who? Ahab, Jezebel. Things had gotten so dark and so evil in that day that God and his word were no longer feared. God was no longer loved no longer feared. His word was no longer obeyed. There was open defiance and it typified Ahab's reign. But notice the cost. Don't miss that. Don't miss the cost that one incurs when you defy the word of the living God. Asked heel of Bethel how much it cost him to rebel against the word of the living God. It cost him two sons. Every day he'd walk by the gravesite and he would be reminded of the cost incurred for rebelling against God, for committing sin. It's a serious thing, isn't it? It's a serious thing. It's a holy thing. Oh, beloved. Saints, understand. Ignoring the word of God is extremely costly. More costly than you are ready to pay. The graves of Abiram and Segub are there to remind us. You see, saints, such was the evil in the days of Ahab when Elijah ministered. When the word of God was blatantly ignored. Can we possibly relate to that at all? Do we live in such a day when men think of sin as nothing? Something to be dismissed as Puritan and something we've moved on and passed away. But the Bible, you begin to read it in the public square and the eyes of men glaze over. Beloved, we like Elijah live in an evil day as well. A day when children consider the sins of their parents a trivial matter. And in Romans 1, that's, that's the sin right up there with homosexuality. Men suppress the truth and unrighteousness. God gives them over. And one of the sins that characterize a people who've been given over are when children disobey their parents. They no longer honor their parents. There's no sense of honor, no sense of duty, no sense of Obligation. We live in a day of casual sex and rampant sexual perversion. Blind to natural law. Not even able to define male and female. And I thought to myself, I wrote this down in my notes, I'm just not sure how natural natural law is anymore. I'd love to have that discussion with one of you. If it's so natural and so obvious, right? We live in a day of gratuitous violence, a day when murder of the unborn children is bragged about in the name of choice. It's only—it's not only you know a necessary evil. It's only on rare occasions. No, 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 no. That train left the station. I see women and men. Go on television in the blockchain, holding up their fans, talking and boasting, glorifying the fact that they killed a human being made in the image of God. This is the day in which we live. Let's pull the curtain back. Let's see the evil that marks our day. Saints, we live in a day like the days of Elijah when men call evil good and good evil when people do what's right in their own eyes. A day where public schools who can't give a child an aspirin are openly advocating for gender, gender transitioning. Or you can't bring a paperclip clip to school or a pocket knife. You can't take a, an aspirin without the provision of a staff person, a teacher, a principal. But yet you can have teachers in the school who can openly talk to your children about mutilating their bodies and removing their sexual organs. This is the day in which we live. Now, we don't like it, Pastor. You need to move on. It was a New York Times article on... Uh, On this mutilating of of young adolescents. And it's mostly girls. It's happening mostly to girls. In the New York Times it's it's called top surgery. It's when they take a, 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 a young woman who's in puberty. And they remove her breast. Double mastectomy. Because she feels like she's a man. Because that's what's normative now that's what matters that's the objectivity is my own navel and what I decide it's the I world well all authority is located within intrinsically no longer extrinsically outside of me no authority is inward it's found within it's within my own heart like in the heart of Solomon or the heart of Jeroboam or the heart of Adam or the heart of Dennis Bullock, left to himself. It's for such a time as this that God has placed us here as the church to be a prophetic voice to the truth, to remain steadfast in our Lord Jesus Christ as salt and light, Now, I've been thinking about this, and this is just something that I thought about on the way into church today. I'm writing this sermon right up into the moment sometimes I come before you. Because I serve the living God, people. Just like you. There are three responses I believe we can take to this cultural moment for the church. First, we can retreat. We can leave the world, but that's problematic. Because Jesus says to be in the world, but what? Not of the world. Not to be marked by the Adamic nature that characterizes this age in the age of Ahab and Jezebel in the 9th century B.C. Can't do that. We could capitulate. You could have me come up here and give you nice hallmark sermons. Never challenge you, just tickle your ears, make you feel good about Jesus being your life coach. I could do that. I could be a sellout. You think it's easy? Bearing the burden of the word of the Lord? No. In my flesh, I would fold as a cheap table, like one of those folding tables over there, Rick, if God the Holy Spirit didn't uphold me. Just telling you what you want to hear. Cuddling you and your sin. Right? Letting you walk in sin like Ahab did for a long time. Can't do that. Or we can fight. Now, I say that with this caveat. Because when I use that word in this context, particularly in this congregation, I have a congregation of Fighters. That's a good thing. That's a grand thing. Now follow me. Follow me closely. We're called to fight the good fight. We're called to contend for the faith once delivered, right? We know this, Jude, right? I was ready to say Pastor Yancey, but Ruling Yellow Yancey taught us a few weeks ago. We get to contend for it. The word is some of the word from which we get agonized. Now, that's not a nice word, right? I mean, that's not a soft little, you know, placid word. Agonize to contend for it. But let me suggest to you this. When you think about contending, I don't want you to think about it in the calculus of the world. To contend as the world contends. Now, follow me, my elders, follow me, please. We don't contend using the weapons of the warfare of the first Adam. Bravado. Testosterone. I'll show you. No. No. Listen. This is the Apostle Paul. A mighty man of valor. Listen to what he said. 2 Corinthians 10, 3 through 5. For though we walk in the flesh, right, in the Adamic flesh, right, we're not waging war according to the flesh, the sarks, the Adamic nature, carnality as the world, those in Adam. We're not waging war that way, right? One-upmanship with literal swords like the Crusades in the 6th century, right? We're going to go out and take Jerusalem for Jesus, (laughs) Abram tanks, F 118 fighters, nation building, put the Christian flag beside the United States flag. We're going to take back the world for Jesus. No, that's not not what Paul's saying. He says, and Rick, you'll love this, verse 4 For the weapons of our warfare. Now, do you hear that? We have weapons. The church is not without weapons, there's an armory. There's weapons. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh. But have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments. That's what we have. We have arguments. We have the gospel, right? And every lofty opinion raised up against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. You see, our weapons, what are they? Let me just give you a few of them. First, we have the truth. We don't have All Saints' truth. We don't have the PCA's truth. We don't have Oprah's truth and Bill's truth and Jim's truth and Susie's truth. We have the definite article, the truth. We have the truth. We have reality. That's what truth is. We have love. The first Corinthians kind. Love that overcomes evil with what? Evil? With good. And sometimes that love will have to pay the cost ultimately. That an enemy might become a friend of Jesus. Might become a son of Jesus. That we might have to die. And we have Righteousness. We have integrity and obedience to the truth and love. Right? So we have truth. We have love. We have righteousness. And we have faith and we have prayer. Again, our, our battle is not against flesh and blood. And so often the church is battling using the weapons of flesh and blood. I'm amazed how quick I am. My default position is is to begin thinking about how I'm going to muster my resources to defeat this foe. And I forget altogether the spiritual dynamic, the heavenly dynamic of our warfare. That our weapons are not carnal, that our enemies are spiritual in nature, their principalities and powers in high places. Men who hold abhorrent, heretical doctrines in the PCA hold them with demonic power. Just like yourself, you were enslaved to demonic power. You were enslaved. You were an object of wrath prior to the cross. You were an enemy of God. You hated God. Everything in your life was antithetical to God. There was no neutrality. You came out of the womb shaking your fist at God. And so did I. So why are we so foolish to think that we're going to defeat the enemies of God using weapons of carnality? How much more should we be people of prayer and of the word and making arguments with the word of God that his kingdom would go forth? that his will would be done on this earth as it is in heaven. You see, when you don't fight in God's ways, all you're doing is moving the furniture in a dark room. Right? It's just pawns on a chessboard. People don't just need advice. They've got to be resurrected. It's hopeless. It's hopeless without Jesus Christ. You're hopeless. You're without God. You're without hope. Apart from his mercy. I don't care how smart you are. I don't care what your GPA is. God doesn't care. God doesn't look on the outward. God looks on the heart. And he changes the heart. Right? He takes away the heart of stone. He gives a heart of flesh. He takes away a heart of hatred and he makes it able and willing according to Westminster Confession of Faith chapter 10 on effectual calling. Willing to obey. Oh, how I love Jesus. You say this? Yes, I know you do. But you know why you say it? Do you know why you say it? Do you say it because you're more crafty, wiser, smarter, better looking, taller? Smell better. Look better. Oh, no, 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 no. You say it because God, in his mercy, saw you in your sins. As he saw Israel lying in the afterbirth. Right in Ezekiel. That's how gross our sin is. That's how gross we were outside of Jesus Christ. But God. God set his affection on you. God set his love on you, not because you were lovely, but to make you lovely. To make you acceptable in his son. You see, that's your only boast today, is Jesus Christ. That's your only boast. That will be your only boast from now and throughout eternity. That was your boast when you first came. It will be your boast to the very last. To the very end, when time will be no more, all praise, all glory, and all honor will be given to the Lamb who was slain. (sighs) You see, it's all about Him. He's the God who saves sinners, not the righteous, not merely the sick, but those who are dead in sin, shaking their fists at God. He saves them. He saves them by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. You see, for such a time as this, God has placed us here. Let us fight with the weapons that God has given us. A cross-shaped love with the truth and the righteousness, with faith and prayer. Well, secondly, and I must move on. I've spent more time on that point than I needed. Secondly, like Elijah, we serve a faithful God. Notice when God shows up providentially. When does God show up? Does he show up when men can somehow contribute something? When somehow we can take something for ourselves? No. He shows up right after the funeral of the two sons of Abiram and Sigu. He shows up in the pit of hell and darkness and he brings forth his word through his prophet. That's when he shows up. When it gets Absolutely hopeless. When there is no other hope, save God, he shows up. Now, I can't explain that. I wish he would show up sooner. But seemingly out of nowhere, like lightning, God burst forth through his prophet Elijah. No pedigree, no family line. We don't even know where Elijah went to seminary. We don't know. We have no idea. Where is he from? He's like Melchizedek. Where did this dude just show up? Where was he living? What's going on? What, what, what subdivision was it? I have no idea. We don't know. There's no exchange of pleasantries. But like a lion, right? Elijah comes before wicked king Ahab. He goes into the palace to the, before the throne of Elijah. Verse 1. As Yahweh the God of Israel lives before whom I stand, there shall be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word. I read that and I thought, what a bold man. Well, we're going to see what made him so bold. It wasn't his flesh. It wasn't his academic bravado. It wasn't his testosterone. I couldn't help but think of John Knox. It's reportedly said of Queen Mary of Scots that she feared Knox's prayers more than 10,000 soldiers. But saints, what we see here is that through Israel and Ahab, Though they may have forgotten Yahweh, the covenant Lord has not forgotten them. Notice this short sermon, unlike today's sermon. It's just one one line. But see, when God's with you, it, it could be 12 lines, it can be one word, two words. There shall be neither dew nor rain these years except my word. You see, Ahab is reminded who brings the rain. Ronald Wallace says, for Elijah to appear so suddenly reminds us that we need not despair when we see evil succeeding on the earth. For we may sure that God, in unexpected ways, has secretly prepared his stability of evil. God can raise up men from out of nowhere. And that's exactly what he did. He doesn't need a moral majority. He doesn't need it. He doesn't need 51%. He just needs one, a faithful prophet, priest, and king to conquer the world. And that's exactly what he did, didn't he? Through the folly and the foolishness of a piece of wood hung on a hill right outside the city gates there in Jerusalem where his son bled and died to defeat all of his foes. Who is a God like this God? Worthy, worthy, worthy is the Lamb. You see, not even rain nor even dew. You see, Yahweh was shutting off Baal's faucets. God had warned the people in his laws. They're not just idle. Right? Don't listen to the word. It's a scary thing to listen to the word of God. It's scary. It's, it's even scary to preach it. Let not many of you be teachers. Because when you listen and you hear it, you're responsible for what you hear. And God had told the people that his words are not idle words. That they were life for the people if they obeyed, but if they did not, it would be death. You obey, Leviticus 26, 3. Follow my decrees and commands, and I will send rain in its season. Disobey. Cursed, Deuteronomy eleven sixteen through 17. Take care lest your heart be deceived and you turn aside and serve other gods and worship them. Then the anger of the Lord Yahweh will be kindled against you and he will shut up the heavens so that there will be no rain and you perish in the land the Lord your Yahweh is giving you. Ahab didn't listen. Heel of Bethel didn't listen. All saints, you who sit comfortably in that pew, I who stand behind this pulpit, are we listening? Are we listening to the word of the living God? It doesn't return to him void. Isaiah 55, as the rain falls from the heavens to water the earth, so my word falls from my mouth, and it accomplishes everything I set it forth to accomplish. Well, it, it doesn't look very impressive today, pastor. You, well, look, the church is not even full. There's only, what, maybe 100 people here. We're not very impressive. You don't have any fancy arguments. The, the pastor up front, he's not very loquacious or intellectual. He's just talking about this Jesus all the time. How are you going to conquer the world? How are you going to transform culture doing that church if god says he will bring down the proud and the self-righteous and punish sin we should take him at his word take him at his word he keeps his word of judgment but you know what he also keeps here's the gospel His word of promise. His word of promise. As he did for Elijah there. Verses 2 to 6. Notice what it says. And the word of the Lord came to Elijah. Depart from here and turn eastward and hide yourself by the brook Cherith. Which is east of the Jordan. Now why is he running? Have you read a little bit about Jezebel? She's killing prophets. This is a time of persecution. This is a time of deep darkness. The Christians, the Jims and the Joes in the kingdom of God are being slayed. That could be our day. You, you, think, you think it couldn't happen here? <laughs> oh, it can happen here. It can happen here. It can happen right here at 3000 Grove. But notice the provision. You shall drink from the brook that I have commanded the ravens to feed you there. Right? The God who knows the sparrow and the swallow in the tree and knows when it falls, just like the hair on your head, he knows he can command birds to feed his people. And that's exactly what he does. Ravens? Unclean? Yeah. Oh, yeah. He uses me. He can use a raven. So he went and did according to the word of the Lord. Now, isn't that interesting? Here's the servant of the Lord. What is he doing? He hears the word of the Lord. and What's he do? He obeys it. He repents. And he believes it. He takes him at his word. He goes, he goes and does. It. The very thing Israel and Ahab and Jezebel will not do. Here's Ahab. Here's Elijah rather doing. He went and lived by the brook Cherith, that is, east of the Jordan. And the ravens brought him bread and meat in the morning and bread and meat in the evening. And he drank from the brook. You see, God provided for his people. Supernaturally. He provided. You see, the living God who provided for Elijah is the God who provided for us in Jesus Christ. We can take him at his word. If he's promised, all who come to him, he will no wise cast out. What does that mean? All who come to him, he will no wise cast out. If he's promised that if you confess your sins, he's faithful and just to forgive you and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. You know what that means? He's faithful and just to forgive you and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. That's what it means. Take him at his word. What more can he say than you he has said? Right? As the hymn writer says. Let God be true and every man a liar. You can bank your life on his word. You don't need to get frustrated and dominated by the fears. That was a beautiful prayer of Nels, wasn't it? See, pray that we would not be people of fear. There's only one to fear. There's only one fear. And his name is fear. That's what Isaac called him. He was the the fear of Isaac, the living God. He's the one we are to fear. So we can fight not in the ways of the world, got to get leverage here, got to manipulate, got to work the system, man, it's all about the angle. No. No. No, 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 no. It's about getting on your knees and seeking the face of God. That's the key, and I can't even get to it this morning. You know why Elijah was so powerful in his ministry? Because he had uh, more sophistry. Uh, He went to uh, Wharton School of Business, what, what, what is it? Well, come on, tell me, what is it? I need it. I mean, I mean, tell me, tell me the clue. Did you listen to Nell's read, James chapter 5, verse 17? He prayed, he prayed, he prayed, and God heard his prayer. The God who made Elijah's ears heard his prayer. He heard his cry, and he heard this righteous man pray. You see, before Elijah stepped into the throne room of Ahab, you know where he stepped? He stepped into the prayer closet. And he was on his knees before God. So when he went before the king, who is this man? Who is this uncircumcised Philistine, to use the words of David? Who is this who stands against the Lord of hosts? You see how powerful, how strong he was in the Lord? Weak in his own self. Weak in his own gifts. You see, that's the temptation is for you and for me to trust our gifts rather than the giver of the gifts. To fall back on our own resources. To lean on our own understanding. To not acknowledge him in all our ways. So then our paths are chaotic. We do the inversion of God's word. We do the very thing God's word says not to do. That's what we do. But praise God. He's a God who hunts. The cords of mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. And I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. That's true for me individually. That's true for us corporately. Oh beloved we need to go out and fight God's fight. With God's means. With God's weapons. And lean not on our own understanding. Lean not on our own carnality, our own strength. Because he's not going to share his glory with you. He's not. I'm, not. I'm not joking. He's not. He raised up Elijah. And he's still looking. He's still looking. Listen to this. Right, we know this quote by Edmund Burke. Evil triumphs when good men do nothing. By the way, Edmund Burke didn't say it. I'm sorry. I found that out this week. I was under the impression he did. It's still true nonetheless. So God is looking for men and women, boys and girls, to stand in the gap, to fight his fight and battle in his way using his weapons. Notice what he says in Ezekiel, and I close with this. As the Lord is still looking for people who will make a difference, This is what Yahweh, the covenant Lord, the God who is, says. And I sought for a man among them who should build up the wall and stand in the breach before me and for the land. That I should not destroy it. So, see what he's saying? He's saying, he's looking. The eyes of the Lord are looking for a young man, young woman, boy or girl to stand in the breach, to stand on the wall. But then notice it says, it says, but I found None. Yahweh says, I found none. And I thought to myself, are there going to be any here in our church who are going to stand in the gap and fight God's fight, God's way, using God's weapons? That's only what's going to last eternally, is fighting his way, his fight, his way, and his spirit. Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you for your mercy. We thank you for the gospel, which is the power of God unto salvation. We thank you for faithful ministers throughout this land who preach it in all simplicity, not with underhanded motives, but with clarity and simplicity. We thank you, Father, for our church. We thank you for our elders. We thank you for our deacons. We pray that you would hold us fast, that we would be men who would fight your battle using your weapons, leaning not on our own understanding, but leaning on the cross and looking to Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith. We pray this in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, Amen.